Jesus did not want anyone to know where they were because he was teaching his disciples. He said to them, The Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him, and after three days he will rise. But they did not understand what he meant and were afraid to ask him about it. They came to Capernaum, and while he was in the house, they asked him, What were you arguing about on the road? But they kept quiet because on the way they had argued about who was the greatest. Sitting down, Jesus called to the twelve and said, If anyone wants to be first, he must be the very last and the servant of all. He took a little child and had him stand among them. Taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me, and whoever welcomes me welcomes not me, but the one who sent me. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. So one of the ways that I prepare to preach is that I listen to a sermon podcast. And this is not one of those services where they like give you the outline and tell you how you, how you can uh, preach on Sunday. I have... Uh, I've never liked the idea of doing that, and uh, I don't think I could. But I do appreciate this podcast. It's a couple of guys, fellow Episcopal priests. Uh, one's out in Waco, Texas. The other one uh, is in New York. I got to know him a little bit when I was up there for seminary, and I've stayed in touch. Uh, and they've got a, a podcast called Same Old Song. And the, the idea is that uh, we are preaching the same old song. We're singing the same old song because it was good in the first place and we don't need to mess with it. The ministry that it's part of is called Mockingbird, and the, the idea with Mockingbird is that the Mockingbird doesn't make up its own tune. It sings the tune that it hears, and likewise, those of us who are Christ's servants don't make up our own thing. We tell the good news that has been told to us and that we've received and that has brought life. And in this podcast, the first thing the guys said this week after they got over their usual uh, banter and bad jokes is they said, don't preach Proverbs 31. So I think you all know what I'm going to do. <laughs> now, the reason that people would be wary of preaching Proverbs 31 is that this is one of those texts in Scripture that has been abused. It's a text that instead of bringing life, has brought death. There's a movement of people calling themselves ex-evangelicals, people who were in the evangelical world and have decisively left it in part because they encountered all kinds of toxic aspects of that environment. But newsflash, all of our con contexts have toxic elements and good elements, and the key in any healthy church is to hold up the good and to nourish that and to cultivate an environment where the toxicity is not able to do too much damage. But th these folks will tell a story, of, especially as women, of being in churches where this ideal of a Proverbs 31 woman was held up and it was experienced to be an impossibility. One aspect of this picture is, is a hyper-spirituality that uh, Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord 
she'll be praised. I was reminded of a, a song Kim Hill, the contemporary Christian uh, songwriter, did back in 1989 on her debut album called Charm is Deceitful. It was her, her version of this, uh, of this verse. And the, the chorus, lovely song, and the chorus is, Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but, but a woman who fears the Lord shall be praised. But then in the lyrics, when she adds her own twist, she says, in a world where we see with our eyes, I pray for eyes that see the heart. And then in the second verse she says, and I know that when he sees me, it won't be beauty that he longs to hold. It'll be the love that he finds inside my heart. So what you have, and this certainly was, was consumed enthusiastically by folks in that environment, you have a, a picture of what it means to be a true godly woman that is deeply spiritual, but not connected with anything material. Now, I am not going to knock deep spirituality, but I have to say that that doesn't really catch the flavor of, of this poem. Another aspect of the way that this text was abused was that it basically was held up as an example of womanhood, biblical womanhood, in that the Proverbs 31 woman is depicted as making her husband happy all the time. Now again, nothing wrong with wives making their husbands happy, but the idea was that uh, if she brings him good, not harm, all the days of her life, if on any given day your husband's unhappy, then you must have done him harm, not good. That's a heavy burden to bear. And so a lot of people, as a result of this word that should bring life, ended up experiencing despair. I think that picture, I think that image of womanhood comes from a bad reading of this text. And in my mind, the solution to a bad reading of a text is not to ignore the text. It's not to put it in a drawer and say, oh, this is just, this is, is, is too tainted. No, the solution to a bad reading is good reading. The solution to a bad theology is good theology, not no theology. So let's try to read this text well. It starts out, a capable wife who can find. It sounds like the beginning of a Henny Youngman joke, right? And the end, that was his whole thing. At least that's how the New Revised Standard translates. It's kind of funny. That also translating it that way is the Holman Christian, Christian Standard Bible. Basically, you have the, the two Bibles used at the far ends, the far left and right ends of the biblical academy uh, are both translating it the same way. My NIV that I preach out of says, a wife of noble character who can find. And I think that kind of a picture is what has contributed to part of the problem. The, the fact is that they depict a woman who is able to do stuff, a woman who is, um, is, is a, a, a good person. And that's true of the Proverbs 31 woman that's described in the Scripture. But actually, the best translation, I think, comes in the Septuagint. The, the old Greek translation of the Old Testament that was around at the time of Jesus translates 
Gunaika Andreon, literally a manly woman who can find. See, what's celebrated in here are the kind of virtues that we would celebrate in anybody, male or female. The, the Hebrew eshet chayil is used one other place in Scripture other than Proverbs 31. That phrase shows up in the book of Ruth, describing Ruth. And that word chayil, which translates as noble or virtuous or valiant or excellent or capable, that word is also used to describe Boaz. In fact, usually what it's used to describe when we find it in Scripture is things like armies, things like wealth, power, prestige, dignity. Last week we went to the ball game and it was just a lovely day and great people. And the O's lost 22 to 7. But Kathy was wearing this hat that she says gets her all these compliments. A U.S. Army woman veteran. She also gets compliments, she said, on the shirt that says, this mama wore combat boots. That's the kind of picture we get in Proverbs 31. It's a woman who's strong. Look at, look at what, she's, look what she does. She, uh, she selects wool and flax. She works with eager hands, like the merchant ships. She brings her fruit from afar. She gets up while it's dark and provides food for her family and for the, the household staff. She speculates in real estate. She plants vineyards, setting about her work vigorously. And, and her, her arms are strong for her tasks. This is, this is not the picture of a, a, a meek little woman sitting in the corner. This is somebody you don't want to mess with. She sees that her trading's profitable. Her lamp doesn't go out at night holds the distaff in her hands, grasps the spindle with her fingers. She opens her arms to the poor, extends her hands to the needy. Taking care of those in need is always a virtue that is held up in the Scriptures, not least in the Old Testament. And she, and one of my colleagues noted this week, like Job, was somebody who was generous and cared for those in need. She was industrious. She profited from, from her, the whole household enterprise and use that to care for those in need. And when it snows, she's got nothing to worry about. She knows everybody's well-dressed. Uh, I'm going to say that we shouldn't skip over the delight she brings to her husband. I think when we read she makes coverings for her bed, she's clothed in linen and purple. I don't think that's really about the duvet cover. But her husband is respected at the city gate when he takes a seat among the elders. The husband does absolutely nothing. <laughs> this is a poem about her. This is a poem about his wife. And he looks great. He has the reputation he has because of her. She's clothed with strength and dignity. She can laugh at the future. Speaks with wisdom faithful instructions on her tongue. Her children arise and they call her blessed. Her husband also. He praises her. Many women do noble things, but you surpass them all. This is quite a lady, huh? And I think that's the real danger. 
that you can come to if you take this text seriously, if you actually read it and you, just, you don't just hear a few verses and react against it. The fact is, this is an impossible ideal of personhood, right? I mean, on a good day, maybe you can hit a couple of these points, but every day? And I think the way we're supposed to read this, rather than having it make us discouraged or (laughs) exhausted trying to follow it, is to recognize that this really is seen as, as a composite picture of, of all of the positive qualities that a, a woman could have. I think that's actually supported by the, the very nature of the text. It's an acrostic, which means that, that each verse starts with, with a different letter of the alphabet. And it's 22 lines long because there are 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet. You, psalm 119 is a whole psalm singing the praises of Scripture. And there, each eight-verse block starts with the same letter of the alphabet. Here, each, each verse starts with the same letter of the alphabet, and so you get the, the fullness of the alphabet, and you get the fullness of a picture of biblical womanhood, but that's not supposed to make you discouraged. It's not supposed to make you feel like you're less than. It's supposed to, I think, for one, make you encouraged that no matter the slanders that people have brought against God and His Word, it does not put women down. It does not treat them as second-class citizens. It indeed upholds and celebrates the great work that women do. I think we also, when we encounter this picture that we'd love to live up to, I think we have to do what James said, and that is to draw near to God if you draw near to God, He'll draw near to you. That, that doesn't mean that you're supposed to feel like if you don't feel like God's n- near to you, then you must not be trying hard enough to draw near to Him. It's a promise that His resources are always available to you for the doing of His will. One of my favorite verses in Scripture is that verse at the end of Hebrews where, where, where the, the, the writer says, the, 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 the God who brought it back from the dead, our Lord Jesus Christ, that great shepherd of the sheep, God equip you with everything good for the doing of His will, that He may work in you that which is pleasing to Him. God is the one who provides the resources by His Holy Spirit to live in the way that He enables us to live when we see, whether it's this uh, celebrated composite superwoman of Proverbs 31 or when we contemplate the saints, our response should not be, oh, I just don't measure up. It's to say, Lord, make me someone moving in that direction. Work in me that which is pleasing to you through our Lord Jesus Christ, and to His glory. Amen.